Welcome back to Carlisle's Insights and Indicators podcast, where our head of global research, Jason Thomas, shares his insights and opinions based on our composite portfolio data and analysis of recent government reports. All of the data that we discuss today is accurate as of the recording of November 2nd, 2022. Jason, welcome back. Thanks for having me. Jason, the Federal Reserve raised interest rates today by three quarters of a point, so base financing costs continue to increase. With this as a backdrop, has the next recession for the U.S. arrived? No. You know, what I think was most interesting about the data is that we all see that the risk of recession is rising. I think we all feel it, uh, and and we intuitively understand it, given the rate hikes that, that of course, occurred today and have happened throughout the course of 2022. But you know the economy is is actually still growing, and I think what's most salient to me about the data, and of course this relates to inflation, but business revenues continue to grow at a at a very rapid rate. If you look on an economy wide basis, the portfolio data are consistent with business revenue growth at a seven percent annual rate starting in Q four of twenty twenty two. So, you know this is still almost twice the average prior to the onset of the pandemic. So in some ways, the way I would describe the economy is, is that it's not a slowdown per se. It's that much too much of the revenue growth being observed is actually coming from pushing price through rather than underlying volume growth. Underlying volume growth, you know, real GDP, is probably growing at something like a 1% annual rate. That, that's our estimate right now. So you, know, you have the combination of elevated inflation and, and of course, uh, real volume growth that gets you to something like six or seven percent annualized revenue growth. So, you know, it, it's it's interesting when you look at company financials. You go through earnings season as we have. Investors hate inflation, but when the same inflation data is reported by the companies, they're actually raising prices. Investors actually like it. You know that they see better performance than they expected. They see faster revenue growth, and and actually markets, of course have rebounded in October during this period when many companies have reported faster revenue growth than expected. And, and in almost all of those cases, the faster revenue growth is directly tied uh, to, to inflation, to the ability to raise prices without seeing an offsetting decline in sales. So Jason, you said that revenue growth is up about 7% and that current price levels are driving that. And you recently concluded that current price levels are up about 5.8% from a year ago based on our composite portfolio data. At the same time, you said that the supply chain crisis, which significantly contributed to inflation, has effectively ended. Could you help us all understand what we should take away from inflation remaining high at the same time that the supply chain crisis has abated? Well, I think one thing we've learned over the past year is that the, the the origin of the inflationary shock is not where it ended. That's to say that I think we can all agree that there was too much stimulus added to a supply-constrained economy. So that led to increased prices because it led to shortages. It led to uh, more spending than could be accommodated by an economy that was still dealing with the pandemic and, and associated closures. And that was then really most obvious when you look at various metrics in the supply chain, things like the backlogs at ports, the dramatic increase in delivery times of components and parts and finished goods, the exponential rise in bulk and container shipping costs, 
So all these things was, was just clear that there was just the volume of stuff trying to go through our transportation networks and logistics networks was simply too large. It was, it was more than could be accommodated by these networks. And so that led to further shortages, further upward pressure on prices. But again, the, the price increases didn't stop there. Once prices started rising, once management teams recognized that they could push through on price and not suffer losses in sales, losses in market share, they continued to keep pushing on prices. And so you see that again, when, when you look at the portfolio, when you look at also public company reports for Q3, there's still quite a lot of price increases that are occurring across the economy and, and in places that really weren't impacted by the supply chain crisis. And now, uh, as, as you mentioned, and we, we reported from our data this month, there's really not much evidence that supply chain crisis is, is still a thing. You know, all of those metrics I just mentioned in terms of backlogs and delays and shipping rates have all, you know, more or less returned to normal. There's still supply chain issues that for places, uh, you know, of the economy like uh, electric vehicles, renewable energy, and, and a lot of that is just growing pains. You know, it, it's parts of the economy that are scaling up at rates that really it's difficult to accommodate with, with the existing capacity. And then there's also, of course, issues with export controls on things like semiconductors to China that, that have created new supply chain issues. But in terms of the, the supply chain crisis is understood because of the onset of the pandemic, it, it's basically over. But yet those price increases persist because, again, this is a situation where management teams got a taste of this ability to raise prices, push through on price, you know, and, and, and really have continued to do so. And, and now really this issue with the Fed continuing to raise interest rates, it, it's really their effort today is to take this pricing power away, to, to create conditions where management teams feel that another round of price increases is going to be self-defeating because it's going to lead to lost sales that essentially cancel out any benefit from, from the price increase. So, so that's, that's really where we are today. It's, it's, it's almost a, a question of social psychology. And, and again, the Fed uh, effectively trying to change attitudes and then change behaviors so as to deter any subsequent increases in prices. Thank you for explaining that, Jason. So while we've been talking a lot in the US about broad-based inflation, the crisis in Europe is the crisis that uh, most are, are talking about is the energy crisis specifically. How are policy responses to the energy crisis in Europe shaping economic outcomes there and around the world? Well, so right now, uh, I, I would say, as with the United States, the October data in Europe were actually surprisingly strong. Now, in, in each case, whether industrial production, manufacturing orders, consumer spending, GDP, we had to revise up our expectations because the October data were, again, generally stronger than had been expected on month-ago forecasts. So that was interesting. When, when you look at why that was, well, I think it was first the decline in energy prices, but secondly, it was really just the, the subsidies that have been instituted by governments in Europe. And those subsidies are, are very large. Some cases, you know, between three to six percent of GDP in, in explicit subsidies to reduce energy costs for households and businesses. And so, I'm not sure that these subsidies are, are sustainable. It's certainly at these levels, and in some cases, governments are paying as much today to subsidize energy consumption as they were to support the economy during the pandemic. 
so this is just something I don't think you can do on, on a permanent basis. It, it becomes unaffordable. But I think in the short run, it, it, it has had the intended effect and it, it has helped prevent the economy from going into a you know, deeper recession. So that's certainly what we, we took away from the data. I think that in addition to just the cost, there is some perversity here. You are <laughs> actively subsidizing fossil fuel consumption. That is driving up the price of things like LNG in Asia. So, you know, it, it is something that I think one can question the sustainability, one, one can question ultimately, you know, the, the advisability of, uh, of subsidizing fossil fuel consumption. But, but I think there's no doubt that at least in the short run, it has helped to, to lessen some of the pain that the economy would otherwise be feeling. Finally, I would just say, and, and we're closely monitoring this, when you have a reduction in demand for natural gas, for instance, different reductions in demand are not created equal. You know, if households decide to have their house at 16, 17 degrees Celsius, you know, low 60s in the winter, well, you know, that may not be very comfortable, but this doesn't impact economic outcomes or, or productivity output, et cetera. Similarly, if you have offices that are kept at relatively low temperatures, you're saving on gas consumption, you know, reducing expenses, saving gas for, for other uh, more acute needs, not really having much of an impact on output or, or production. But it's in the industrial sector. And, and as we said, prior to the onset of, of Russia's war on Ukraine, Europe was consuming about 14 billion cubic feet of gas every day in the industrial sector. And so it's, it's that portion of the reduction in demand that's problematic because when you're not using gas as a feedstock for uh, chemicals, for fertilizer, or, or you're not burning the gas in furnaces for ceramics, glass, metallurgy, well, well then you know, that's actually economic output that's lost. And so again, I, I think it's important when, when we look through and, and the reasons why the prices have declined, and some of it is just policy with price caps, but a lot of it really is, is just this reduction in demand that has been observed. And I, I would separate into the, you know, essentially those three categories, two of which households and office, et cetera, where this is great news to see demand down, um, no, no effect on, on economic outcomes, and again, freeing up gas to be used by households in, in the cold months ahead. But the industrial sector decline in, in gas consumption is, is one area where, again, it's a source of concern. And, and I think that the question for, for some of the, the manufacturers, or at least in those gas or energy intensive sectors, is why do you expect that anything will change, really, not, not just anytime soon, but, but really almost indefinitely. And so there is that risk of, of not only a, a temporary downturn in gas consumption and that industrial production, but, but longer term. Uh, many of these businesses moving operations to places where uh, natural gas supplies are, are more reliable and available at a lower cost. Well, Jason, thank you as usual for spending time with us to focus our attention on what you feel are the most important macroeconomic trends and indicators and explaining it to us in a very concise manner in less than 15 minutes. So uh, we really look forward to our, our final discussion with you next month in December, where we will be discussing whether the Federal Reserve is doing their final interest rate hike. And we will, of course, continue to observe with you the energy crisis in Europe and also look out towards Asia and into 2023. So thank you again for your time today. Great. Thank you.